Curran goes into detail about how they make cases on counterfeit drugs. You know, we work very closely with law enforcement, but as you can well imagine, and Steve, when he was in West Virginia and in Miami, the phone rings and everybody's got, hey, this guy at the corner walking, don't walk, he wears a black hat, he's slinging coke. Okay, great. Like, what am I going to do with that? And I don't want to be that guy calling the Phoenix PD or LAPD or sheriff's office and say, hey, there's bad stuff happening. So if we have intelligence that that's happening, we run it just like we would a DEA. We go out and make test buys. We buy the product. We have it analyzed. We create a portfolio of evidence just like we will with a DEA 7, 7A, put together a whole a file of it. We do surveillance. And once we have what we think is a representative case, it's very clear that we have a lot of activity. It's all adding up. We know who the players are. We've, we've done surveillance. We've worked through the first person we bought from to buy from their source. So we've gotten to a mid-level distributor. Once we have all that, it's well organized. And we've, again, chain of custody on the evidence, well-written documented reports. Uh, then we contact law enforcement. Welcome to Game of Crimes. But Steve paid so much time and attention to quality and design and the experience. These things couldn't deliver on the experience. Had they delivered on the experience, he might have hired the people to come be designers. But I think the thing that offended him more than anything else was the brand impact it was having on the reputation of Apple that he would go, we would never make anything this crappy. Well, you know, it's funny. When, when I told him I'd been down in Argentina to a training and, and I was getting all this product from the Argentina Customs, he's like, why would you go down there? We don't even sell stuff down there. I said, well, not you, but somebody's selling a lot of Apple stuff down there. You know what, Steve? When they get this piece of crap from China and it doesn't work right, that's their first introduction to an Apple product, and it sucks. They're not going to buy another one. Yeah, but it's not ours. I said, well, they don't know that, Steve, because here it is. Got Apple on it. Oh, so that was like the first realization that so then about every week or two I'd get an interoffice envelope. Some Apple fan had sent him a counterfeit item from Malaysia, Thailand, China, wherever, sent it to him, and he would send it to me with the same sticky. I need fuckers. Steve. And I gotta tell you, I was over in Singapore one time and at the market there they were releasing the new iPhone before it was even out and they're already you know, got the phones for sale in some of these markets and stuff. And it's like, I didn't realize how pervasive it was. But Singapore is such a nice place. But even in Singapore, and I was over in Malaysia too, Jakarta and places like that, all of this stuff, you you knew it was counterfeit because of the pricing and the packaging and everything. But it was just amazing how fast this stuff would come out. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. So the, one of the new nanos was coming out, and it was on all the billboards in the Bay Area. And, um, so we knew it was coming, coming March 1st, blah, 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 Monday. So it was coming out. And the two days after it was supposed to launch in America, I got a call from Customs at the San Francisco Airport, International Rivals, and they had thousands of nanos had arrived. Counterfeit nanos arrived in San Francisco two days after it actually went on the market in San Francisco, and they were knockoffs. So they had gotten them out of the factory in Guangzhou at Foxconn, replicated them, and put MP players in them and sent them out across the country. It was it, And I think that was probably, you know, as we start talking about counterfeiting, people underestimate the, the capabilities, the intellect, the know-how of counterfeiters. And it's kind of like I think Steve was the first one, Stephen Hobby were the first ones to really demonstrate Pablo Escobar and the people of his ilk. They're not morons. They're not stupid. They... They did amazingly clever stuff. Now, I have asked Stephen Javier a hundred times, what's his greatest, like, 
intellectual capability that made him that great. And they give me the same answer every time, violence, which I don't think is an intellectual capability. But he still had people in his organization that could figure out how to do the stuff they did with logistics and money and what have you. And I think with counterfeiting, we underestimate them as well. Well, think about the narco subs and, and the engineering that goes into some of the stuff and the things that they do, you know, and it's like maybe his greatest skill wasn't so much that he knew, but he but he knew that if he threatened you enough, you were going to come up with a solution. So but but, you know, getting back to what you were saying there, though, too, it's like, how well, first of all, how long were you at Apple? Um, Just one doing year. This? I was there for a year. I learned a good lesson. Your 16 year old daughter can actually divorce you. If, and I didn't know I wasn't married to her. I don't know how she could divorce me. But I had taken her from the place she grew up all the way across the country, and she wasn't happy about it. And, you know, I have an older son. He's awesome, and we have a great relationship, and I had a daughter. And, you know, as Steve well knows, and I listened to everything he and Connie talked about with Monica, you know, being a, a girl dad is a different deal. And you worry more and you care more when you offend your daughter. And I can offend my son and he just offend me back and then we move on. And Steve knows Jack well. And so uh, I don't, but with Megan, you don't want to do that. When she was really unhappy, I was unhappy. So I spent so a year. So where did Apple's, you move from? Where did you move from to go to Cupertino? From the same area, uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, moved to California. And then when I was there, the, the world's largest institutional hedge fund is in Westport, Connecticut, just nearby uh, Fairfield. They were looking for a new head of security. And they wanted somebody with law enforcement experience, pharmaceutical corporate security experience, and tech experience. I'm like, okay, so I'm that unicorn. Jeez. And yeah. I went there. And I spent three and a half years, very, very interesting, uh, working there for Ray Dalio, one of the smartest financial people in the world to this day. And uh, so we came back, came back to our old neighborhood, and Megan got back in school. And to this day, we still have a great relationship. Did you relationship. reconcile? Yes. Did you, did you have to? Now, did you sign a prenup before you moved back? No, but trust me, I have apologized sufficiently, <laughs> and that we have an awesome relationship. So you're a hero again. Well, I went to when she went to Miami, Ohio, to go to college, and it was the dad's weekend, and so I flew in, and she'd not been feeling well, and I got there a day early, and then she says to me, "Hey, um, we don't have a lot going on for dad's weekend. Why don't we go uh, skydiving?" And I said, uh, "I thought you were afraid of heights." She says, "Well, I am, but I figure if I jump out of an airplane, I can check that box and not have that problem anymore." I'm like, boy, you're daddy's little girl. So wow. we went skydiving, have some great pictures, and it was an awesome experience. And that's, you know, being a dad is the greatest thing I ever did, for sure, and uh, for both kids. But that was a good one. Yeah, my youngest is a girl, Amber. And it's you're right. It's boys, they fight amongst themselves, but they dust themselves off. But girls, it starts around, I think, age nine. It's the drama. The drama. It's, you know, oh, my feelings got hurt. Um, I did, was not equipped. I was a cop. I'm like, just suck it up. You know, go back, <laughs> kick her ass. You know, that didn't work yeah. out too well. Well, yeah. my, my wife said when we had a girl, she says, now, listen, you treat a girl, a daughter, just like you treat your son. So, dude, that meant we wrestled, banged her head off the wood floor. Karen said, to, I heard Karen one time tell somebody, you know how you know when, a, when the playtime is over with your husband and the kids? When somebody's crying. That's how you, when it's over. Somebody banging their head on the fireplace, on the floor, <laughs> on the poker. Megan's not a big drama person. She's, a, I think she's like a, she has the boy genes. She doesn't take crap from anybody, and she tells the way it is. And I guess because I raised her like a brother. And uh, so much cuter than either one of us, but she's tough. Good for her. She has to be tough to do all these things that you were doing, right? So, but, so you moved back to Fairfield, Connecticut, you know, so how does, how do you go from San Diego and 80 degrees a day to freezing your nuts off? 
I whine a lot, dude. I'm just going to be candid about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been 20 years. I'm still whining about it. And my wife will say clever things like, you know, they make clothes for this kind of weather. You could buy some of those. I'll get them for you. And she's from Minnesota. So for her, this weather, she calls it moderate. No, moderate is like when you go to the beach, you go to La Jolla from El Cajon, where I live. It's like 10, de 10 degrees cooler. Today, the real field temperature when I left the gym was minus three. That, oh, my I gosh. I didn't know thermometers went below zero. So why do we do that? So here's a quick factoid. Where is the only – Steve, don't pull that up again because you, you wuss, you love Georgia so much you took your sweatshirt off. Couldn't take the heat. But, hey, there's only one 70, place to work Fahrenheit. 70 degrees, just so you know. Yeah, but whatever. What's the only temperature where Fahrenheit and Celsius mean the same reading? What's the, what's the reading where it means it's the exact same temperature? Minus Zero. 40. Oh, minus 40 Celsius is the same temperature as minus 40 Fahrenheit. There you go. You're learning for today. Your life is complete. <clears throat> There's five seconds of our lives we'll never get back here. <laughs> you can't. Take another book Steve, off we've the been shelf. doing podcasts. You got more than a few seconds of your life we're never going to get back. So we got hours. But back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you move back up to Fairfield, Connecticut. You're freezing your cojones off. Um, but at some point, let's talk about this. And we, like I say, we're, we're not going to use the name of the uh, company, but it is an international company headquartered over in Europe in a huge pharmaceutical company. But this is where we want to get into it now. Let's start talking about the real problems and what you started saying. And, you know, let us it's just counterfeit stuff. I mean, I just could not believe, for example, regale us with the story. I did not know MS-13 was counterfeiting children's, what is it, mouthwash? Uh, Cough syrup. Cough syrup. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. And it, it, honestly, when I started seeing the opportunity to raise awareness about this in a way that would be beyond my capabilities, Stephen and Javi were on the lecture circuit, and I just reached out to say hi, guys, because I knew them from, I was kind of their partner in Mexico. Uh, when we were exchanging information, they'd have the information from wiretaps, or we'd have the same exchange, and then they would send me a teletype, hey, here's the coordinates Saturday night, you know, here's the tail numbers, blah, blah. So I I was thrilled to see two guys that I knew, you know, with this narcos experience making, having this, kind of raising the profile of the agency in a positive way. And so now they were on the Narcos speaking tour, and they were going to do a, a briefing for the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators in Savannah, right, Steve, where you guys were going? And so I was talking to them about counterfeit medicines, and they said, hey, why don't you come down here and give us a little more background on where Natty came from, what they're doing, and we'll have dinner. And I'm like, great. So I flew down. And, you know, the Abrazo, I had not seen them in 100 years, they come out of the hotel, big hugs on the sidewalk. You know, your brothers, you're from the same agency, you work together, you risk your lives together. It was just awesome. And, uh, of course, the concierge told me this place to go eat dinner. So Steve and I said, where are we going? I said, oh, a guy told me to go down this place. So I'll get in the cab, tell the cab driver where to go. So we're going. All of a sudden, we're off the road, on a dirt road, driving back in kind of the swamp. <laughs> This is true. You talk about you talk about three paranoid, yeah, three paranoid, three old paranoid DA. We're all looking at you like, dude, this could end badly. We just want to have dinner. Like, why are we driving in the swamp <laughs> in Savannah, Georgia? This is not going to go well. All of a sudden, we come out of the clearing. There's a restaurant. All of, we don't want to say anything. We're like, okay, I don't want to say anything. But this is going kind of down a scary road. Yep. So anyway, we had a blast and uh, started talking. And then it dawned on me, you know what? We should incorporate Stephen Javier to talk about that this is exactly what the bad guys will do as well. Pablo would do this. And, of course, at the same time, I think it was right, right around the same time, Steve, that uh, Chapo started making counterfeit uh, prescription medicines with fentanyl in them. Well, first just with with uh, with uh, pain meds and then, and then fentanyl. 
And so the point was clear. So I was able to invite Stephen Javier to, to join me at some congressional briefings because it's one thing for me to tell you this based on what we're reading about Chapo. It's another thing to have the two guys who took down the world's number one narco-terrorist in the history of drug trafficking, that how he had gone from stealing gravestones to stealing hubcaps to selling, you know, knocking off penny marijuana dealers and selling that, and then stealing cocaine from people, selling that, to becoming the number one narco-trafficker in the world. And that was, what's the next opportunity? And Javi tells a great story about, about uh, Pablo wanting to make heroin in Colombia and bringing guys in to do that. And so it made sense. So to have Stephen Javi talk about that really made sense. Well, moving forward now, we see MS-13 making counterfeit medicines in El Salvador. And I was speaking to, a, to an associate of MS-13 in Los Angeles who told me that 40% of MS-13's proceeds, their kind of annual budget, comes from the sale of counterfeit medicines. So by far, by, by everybody's agreement, the most violent street gang in the history of the world. And a lot of people don't know MS-13 was born in Los Angeles, right? When the Salvadorans moved to Los Angeles. Mara Salvatrucha, the troops of El Salvador. I mean, right. these guys were former guerrilla fighters, too. Yeah, but when they get to L.A., they got to deal with La M, like the Mexican mafia. And otherwise, they, because they're going down. So they have to get together to form a group to defend themselves against the Mexican gangs. Well, then they become super powerful. And then, of course, as they get extradited or deported back to El Salvador, they become the biggest prison gang in El Salvador. And if you've been reading the local news recently, you know, they're in cahoots with some pretty heavy political players down there. So now we have 40 percent of the proceeds for this terrorist organization comes from counterfeit medicines. And so, again, kind of fall back to I grew up on the border. You know, Maria, my second grandmother, raised me uh, during the day. And it's just an affinity for the community and for the culture and the people. Well, now we see the disenfranchising and marginalizing of the, of the Hispanic community because of various issues. And so, you know, we've all drive around and see the bodega, the botanica, the yerberia, where they're selling incense and candles and herbs and what have you. And now they're selling medicines from Latin America to the community that are counterfeit. And so one of the things I was telling Stephen Holly was, yeah, 20 years ago, Viagra, Cialis, Propecia, lifestyle medicines were counterfeit. But today it's cancer medicines, it's HIV medicines, it's respiratory medicines. So, Aaron, why would they sell counterfeit cough syrup? Why not just go to the store and get it? I mean, it's... Most, I mean, I know that they're controlling those like anything with Sudafed in it. It's like you got to take something up there. They want to register it. But why would they go? Was it just simply because they could knock it off at a cheaper price? Or was there or was some of this, quote, prescription cough medicine? No. Well, if you think about it, these uh, bodegas that we all go in all the time, to, whether you're going to buy your carne asada or buy a candle or whatever, they weren't selling medicine at all. So what happened was somebody comes and says, hey, it'd be great if you had the typical pain relievers and cough syrups and just basic over-the-counter stuff from home. So that when the people come in from Nicaragua and Mexico and El Salvador, they recognize the brands. Oh, they I get it. They were, they were knocking off uh, uh, Salvadorian cough syrup or that brand of it or putting the brand in there, right? Right. So they're international brands, but it was the packaging from that country that people would automatically recognize from home. Oh, that's what grandma told me to take. Abuela said, always take this particular product. Was this any kind of an extortion racket, too, to where they'd come in and they'd say, look, you're going to start selling our stuff or, you know, Plato y Plomo, we're, we're going to burn your little bodega down? That wouldn't surprise me. We didn't hear that. But what we did see, and I did a lot of interviews with store owners, was they didn't know that what they were selling was counterfeit. That was never their intent. Their intent was to provide a product, a service for their community. 
and you and you can understand that and and I and I do have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome in that community, right? I want them to be well and to survive and to thrive. Um, so when they were offered this opportunity to sell medicines that they would recognize from home, and also you know our uh, health insurance in America is complicated and it's expensive and it's not always easily accessible and. So for those people who don't have insurance, and then if they don't speak the language, but they recognize this medicine from home, wherever that be, um, it was a no-brainer. So when these bad guys would start leveraging all of those opportunities to exploit, it was a no-brainer. Medicines were there. The store owners, when we would have very s sincere conversations with them, they never imagined in a million years. They didn't even know what counterfeit was. Like, I mean, they know the word, right? But they never imagined that because nobody talks about it. And... So hey, real quick at this point right here, let's interject. How would you determine that it was counterfeit? Was it through the packaging? Or, I mean, if you have to go down to analyze the contents, that's scientific. That's something, you know, they're not going to be able to do. But how would you, when you were looking at it, how would you know if it's counterfeit? Yeah. So if, if we talk about these medicines today, it's, it's interesting, especially when the package is in a foreign language, the counterfeiters typically make a small mistake, right? In the artwork. And so you can look at, there's a typo, and especially when you work for a company that has a, a foreign language, not Spanish, now they got to replicate that. And, you know, the graphics are pretty, pretty impressive. So they're not going to use a typical scanner. They're going to reset it. Well, when they reset it, they type it wrong. They get the font wrong. They get the uh, color wrong. They get the graphics wrong. They get the separation wrong. There's always something. And so, you know, remember back in the old day, I don't know if they still do it, but People Magazine, towards the end of the magazine, they had two pages. Well, there was two pictures, same picture, and there was something wrong in the second picture that was different from the first picture. And you'd look and try to find the three or four. That's kind of what I do for a living. I play that game. I say, okay, here's the authentic artwork. Here's my suspect artwork. I got to figure out, is this the same? And so the company I work for, we have a library of all of our authentic packaging for every version of the product we make. So the very first thing I do is take pictures of the suspect, send it to my colleague, who then sends me the artwork of the original, and we say, boom, 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 boom. I send those pictures to the, somebody at Customs and Border Protection or Homeland Security or FDA, said, here's how we know it's counterfeit. Then depending on what the prosecutor might want, we can do chemical analysis. And chemical analysis is good for jury, right? Jury's sitting there, okay, it's counterfeit, but if it's dangerous too? Yeah, they're going, well, they're going, it's like, okay, so you fake the box, big deal, right? But it's but it's the chemical analysis that's showing them not, not only did they replicate whatever it is, the cough syrup, but it's they've got dangerous levels of this, that, or something else in it, right? Right. So, you know, before the fentanyl issue, we would see uh, cough syrup that had radiator coolant in it, and they would synthesize the radiator coolant to get the sweet flavor to put it in the cough syrup. Well, that, that, you know, causes renal failure or just the complete absence of any active pharmaceutical ingredients. So you have a small child. I always kind of make the analogy that a small child is like an animal. They can't really tell you what's wrong with them. So you see the cough. You see what looks like a sore throat. You give them the medicine you think is appropriate, but it's not working. But you can't tell if it's not working because it's going to take a few days. You don't think about the fact that maybe the medicine has no medicine in it. And now all of a sudden, whatever they have that's not getting better turns into sepsis which kind of could explain better as a nurse, but sepsis can lead to bacteria getting in the blood system and actually dying from it. So it starts out as, you know, common flu, common cold, becomes very... But then what happens is the child dies. Now, do we know, do we say that child died from counterfeit medicines? No. That child died because they got sepsis. 
Nobody explains the progression. Uh, I have a friend in Los Angeles from Veracruz, Mexico, and her sister, uh, the two of them came to the United States with visas legally to work. They stayed in, in, in Los Angeles. And one day the sister told uh, Esmeralda, listen, I get this pain in my hip. It's really hurting. I'm going to go see the curandero, which is a Spanish word for kind of like witch doctor. He was a, a Mexican guy who dispensed medicines illegally. And uh, so she, Esmeralda's sister goes. She says, but Esmeralda says, come back in time for church because, you know, it's Sunday. So she comes back. She's very lethargic, doesn't feel well, says she's going to bed. And as he says, I couldn't believe it. Like she was going to miss church. So she went to bed. I went to church. I came back. She was non-responsive. I'm scared to death. Took her to UCLA Medical Center where she passed away. So they did the chemical. They did the autopsy. I have the reports. I have the autopsy. I have the coroner's report. No cause of death unknown. Well, at the UCLA Medical Center, when a perfectly healthy 39-year-old person dies, you would think there'd be something, right? Heart attack or she didn't use drugs. She didn't smoke. She drank very little. Just dead. But what we knew is she's gotten two injections of commonly uh, known counterfeit medicines that day. We don't know what it was. Well, what was interesting was when, so when this information was made uh, known to LAPD and they went out to pick the doctor up, or the, the unofficial doctor, there was a gentleman who had just arrived with his young daughter, less than 10 years old, and she was going to be administered the same drugs that had, we believe killed Esmeralda's sister. So, you know, thank God for the cops, right? They went out grabbed this guy, probably prevented another death. And you would think a smaller child with a less mature, you know, system would have died uh, as well. And so, but th but that wasn't classified as a counterfeit drug death. And so, as Steve so eloquently said on a, on a brief interview we did one time, which I've played a thousand times, you know, when somebody has cancer and they get a sub-therapeutic medicine with no active ingredient, well, they die from cancer because it's not being treated. But when they die of cancer... They, first of all, they don't do an autopsy because you had cancer. You're going to die from it. And even if they did an autopsy, it wasn't fentanyl poisoning. It wasn't a, uh, an issue like that. You died of the disease. But you died of the disease because it went untreated. And so uh, we see a lot of this going on. And I think the if we, you know, we always study the bad stuff that's happening and we ask ourselves, okay, is there anything good coming out of this? Like, are we using it? We got to figure out how to use this information in a good way. And this fentanyl issue is so devastating, and I think there were 100,000 deaths, right, in 2021, drug overdoses, many of them attributed to fentanyl, and much of the fentanyl is in counterfeit medicines, but it's allowing us to raise awareness about counterfeit medicines. You don't know what else could happen. And I will tell you, that, that see, that's the thing right there. It's that, uh, Steve, were you the one saying the story? Was it um, a, a mother whose son um, had, was like a honor student or whatever, took one pill one time, was that your story that you had? We're talking about Carrie's son. Uh, we're very good friends with this lady. Her son, and they didn't even take a, a whole pill. He took a quarter of a fake Xanax, a counterfeit Xanax. It had fentanyl in it, right? Yep, had uh, eighteen, I think eighteen micrograms of fentanyl. Doctor said he was dead within minutes. You know, he's like an all-American kid, all-league baseball player, poet, musician. I have a, a bunch of pictures. We did a, a tribute to him and then asked Carrie to speak in front of 300-something cops at the LAPD auditorium, and she's a rock star. You know, when we did that and had her talk, and then uh, we took a break because it was just emotional for me, you know, leading this interview, and she's just a rock star. And uh, so at the break, it was like a friggin' parade. Cops coming out of this auditorium, coming down to the front row to talk to her. They're all shaking hands with her, secret handshake, giving her challenge coins. 
great big six foot four, I don't know, 240 pound cop from LAPD said, you're the strongest person in this entire auditorium. It was awesome. And she's a rock star. And she's sharing this message around the planet. Unfortunately, this is happening over and over and over again until we like continue to raise awareness about this and make sure people know and parents know and everybody knows. It's it's devastating. That's that sounds like a future guest. We ought to talk about that too, because to, just to hear a story like that, that that's the only way to put it. That's one of the reasons why Steve and I like doing this uh, podcast because we hear from the real people. We hear from you. We hear from the Louvalozies. We hear from the Jeff Moores. We hear from the Dominic Polifrons, the Dave Reicherts. You know the Sherry Ozes, Sherry Foster. You know, we hear from the people who really went through it. I mean, pe- we, we tell our little bit of stories and throw some stuff in. and But, you know, people want to hear your story. And I think that's just so powerful. And speaking of your story, one of the things we did in the pre-call, I think it's fascinating, too. Let's talk about how you helped put together a case for, for bringing together to prosecution something like these counterfeit medications. Because, again, we won't say where you work, but you guys put a lot of effort into this. And there's a there's there's one of the reasons you do it this way, and I want you to explain to folks, is you don't go to the police right away. You do your own investigation. You find the stuff. Then you put a package together, and you can br- then you bring it to the police. So let's talk about you know how right now, how you're working these cases, how you get the information, how you get the leads in, how you deploy resources, and the type of work you do to build a case before you bring it to law enforcement. Yeah, I think that's a great example of, you know, we work very closely with law enforcement, but as you can well imagine, and Steve, when he was in West Virginia and in Miami, the phone rings and everybody's got, hey, this guy at the corner walking, don't walk, he wears a black hat, he's slinging coke. Okay, great. Like, what am I going to do with that? And I don't want to be that guy calling the Phoenix PD or LAPD or sheriff's office and, hey, there's bad stuff happening. So if we have intelligence that that's happening, we run it just like we would a DEA. We go out and make test buys. We buy the product. We have it analyzed. We create a portfolio of evidence just like we will with a DEA 7, 7A, put together a whole uh, file of it. We do surveillance. And once we have what we think is a representative case, it's very clear that we have a lot of activity. It's all adding up. We know who the players are. We've we've done surveillance. We've worked through the first person we bought from to buy from their source. So we've gotten to a mid-level distributor. Once we have all that, it's well organized. And we've, again, chain of custody on the evidence, well-written documented reports. Uh, then we contact law enforcement. And we can hey, tell stop them. right there before we get into the law enforcement piece. I, I'm interested, too. How do you get a lot of these leads that come in? They, I mean, because uh, you have to have, obviously, you still work with some version of probably informants or sources and stuff. How do you generate a lot of these leads that now constitute these cases that you're going to put together? Where, where do they come from? Yeah, so I work with a group called Investigator Consultants out in Los Angeles. Steve knows Chris uh, started the company, Chris Buckner. He's got about, I don't know, 20-something investigative consultants, licensed private investigators that work for him. And I think, like, I know Steve, how he works, and, and I work the same way, and so do Javi. You know, we never arrested somebody we didn't like. We always got along. You made friends. Not everybody went to prison forever. Treat them respectfully, and they'll always be a source for you. And so that's what we do out there. We're always – some people don't go to jail. We, we can't make a case on them. Or they do, but they negotiate, and they bargain. So we have eyes and ears on the street throughout the country. And I, I, I really have to, you know, give Chris Buckner, an investigative consultant, a shout-out because he's got more sources and more assets around the world than anybody I've ever met, uh, including prosecutors and police officers and private investigators and informants. So inevitably what happens is Chris will call me and say, hey, listen, we got a call from uh, L.A. 
that this is going on at the at the Santee Alley, you know, in this kind of huge human flea market. And uh, here's what they said is going on. I said, well, great. Go out and see if you can make some buys. So he'll send his investigators or informants out there to make buys, send me the product. Yep, that's what we got. And so we follow up that way and do a full, you know, investigative uh, protocol on the evidence analysis, uh, run the names. Of course, private investigators today have amazing access to data and uh, through licensed uh, protocols. And so we can really provide a really good uh, portfolio of information. And we did one uh, actually down in San Diego where we we made buys for like a year and a half because we weren't sure and it kept growing, it kept expanding until we got to the key player who was happened to be a pharmacist in Tijuana who was smuggling tens of thousands of dollars a, a week across the border into a warehouse in, in San Diego. We know that because we seized over a million dosage units of counterfeit medicines in that warehouse. I say we, Homeland Security, did the search warrant. Really an excellent case. But that was a three-year investigation. The first year and a half was just us collecting it. We wanted to make sure when we presented it that they're like, this is a no-brainer. We're taking the case. How do you sort—go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, are there any legal implications here? I mean, you got your guys aren't sworn law enforcement, so how are you protected? Because it's illegal to buy drugs. Yeah, well, so that's a really good point. We don't deal with narcotics, right? We're not dealing with any scheduled drugs because my company doesn't make any scheduled narcotics. So these are all over-the-counter medicines. So we don't, we don't have that issue. But another issue that's kind of like what you're saying is we do this on our own proactively— so that we can never be accused of being directed by law enforcement to do something. Because once you do that, that's a law enforcement activity, and then there are different constitutional protections for civilians against law enforcement. But they It's don't called have being the... an agent of the government. You know, and real quickly for folks listening, it's like if you go out and you bring me some dope out of a house, that's one thing. But if you come to me and say, hey, there's dope in this house, I say, hey, go get it and then bring it to me, that's a Fourth Amendment issue. So you got to be careful not to become an agent of the government. And that's the fine line you guys are walking. Right, right. And but it's a very clear line. So if we're doing it ourselves and we're buying it, we're collecting it, we're assessing it, we're evaluating it, once we present it, now, if the agency says, ah, we'd like to know more about this, now if they're directing us, then they'll typically sign up the investigators become confidential sources working directly at the direction. It's very transparent, right? There's just no look. There's Steven, a clear I handoff between the private case and the public case. Hey, speaking of that, though, just as you did with DEA, it's like you wouldn't I mean, you wouldn't go out and investigate an eight ball case because that doesn't meet your threshold. I mean, you'd have to have there has to be some threshold. What is your threshold in these counterfeit cases before you open it up before you say, OK, because in the private world, it, just like in the public sector, it costs money. It costs you got to pay investigators. You got to pay your time, other time. What? How do you determine before you open a case? What's the threshold you're looking for? Well, honestly, when you say open, I think that any investigative activity would would constitute an open case, right? We're we're looking, and so the question is, okay, when somebody tells Chris or tells me we got this issue, we got to go take a look, and it's in San Diego, Orange County. You know, Nevada, Phoenix. I'm not flying out there. I'll ask Chris, can you have you guys go peek? So I'm paying an hourly rate to go take a look. But if they say, yeah, it's a lot of stuff, man. It's all over this area, this flea market, this swap meet, this city, then we're opening up the case. If they say, I don't know, man, it seems like this guy brought this for his grandma from Tijuana and she died and he's got the medicine or he got a couple extra bottles, we're not going to waste anybody's time on that. But we still have to assess it. But once we see that there's a pretty much a wholesale market for this product in a location, in a venue, in an area, that's a case we're doing. Now, to your point, if we spend two or three, four months looking at it, 
it never gets any bigger than that one little store, and they just have episodic uh, availability. I'm not going to bother law enforcement with it. They got a lot of stuff going on. I want to take them a case that they can get a prosecutor to file charges on, felony charges that are worth it. And in a perfect world, whether they go to prison or start working with us to work our way up, the goal is always to go get Pablo, right? Whether they be in El Salvador, Mexico, Colombia, wherever, if you don't see that opportunity to go there, we do big cases. I mean, that's our whole goal, right? I always think about the old days when Miami Vice was on TV and the cops always made fun of DEA. And, you know, we did the same thing in San Francisco. We'd watch San Francisco PD. They'd be doing little cases, little cases. And some of the wise guys at DEA, they'd be making fun of the cops. You know, about every 10 days, they hit 47 kilos, 127 kilos. Because if you hit a door every day, you're going to hit a gold mine. Don't be cocky. <laughs> Go work with them, right? Because there we are, dry around doing surveillance, chasing our tail. Two and a half years later, having hit a multi-kilo case. And these guys are hitting golden doors every day because you hit a lot of doors. So go work. Keep your mouth shut, right, and go work. And and uh, I'll just say that, you know, recently I've done some really great work with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. There's some working dudes, man, and, and they really share Vinaway with Hispanic, uh, Puerto Rican. He knows he lives in the second largest Spanish-speaking city in the world. And, uh, you know, that's his, his family and that's his community. That's his constituents. And that's where a lot of the poison is, is in the, the Hispanic community. And he's... It's just great to, to work with law enforcement, whether it be CBP or HSI or DEA or FDA, L.A. County, the police department. They care about their community. When you can show them a, a direct, clear and present threat to their community, they're on it. And uh, so, you know, I'm really excited at this point in my career to be doing that kind of work where, you know, a lot of guys will say, look, if you're you know shooting heroin or snorting coke or whatever, when you go out to buy the heroin or coke, that's what you went out to buy. But when you went out to buy to the bodega to buy cough syrup for your child— you didn't sign up for something dangerous. Yeah, you're not planning on buying radiator. Um, yeah, coolant. Coolant to feed to your kid. I mean, no, right. no, no self-respecting parent does that. Hey, let's go back to making the case. So you give us an example of a case you worked, you know, the kind of effort it took, what kind of drugs were involved, and, you know, where it ended up going. Because when you were talking, I mean, this is the equivalent of doing the paperwork on a major case back when you were in DEA. I mean, you've got documentation out the wazoo. You've got paperwork. You've got, like you say, chain of custody forms. You got, I mean, this is a... By the time now, the nice thing about the work that you guys do is by the time you hand it over, it's like, you know, they've got a lot to work with. But tell us, what does it take? Give us an example of a case that you worked and what it took to get to that point. Yeah. So this case we talked about in San Diego, we were doing controlled purchases, undercover purchases for a year and a half. And every single purchase had a surveillance team taking pictures, taking video externally, right? No Fourth Amendment issues, um, documenting every single thing. Everything had a well-written report, had a chain of custody in the evidence, chemical analysis, photos. I remember this day. It was a warm day in San Diego. We were going to meet with U.S. attorneys, excuse me, with the Homeland Security in downtown San Diego. Had to be like 86 degrees, and Chris and I are trying to be professional. We got on a coat and tie. We got five binders, thick binders, of this case. You know, we're sweating. We get to the office, look like a couple of rats, uh, meet with the supervisor and the senior agent at HSI, hand them the binders. They take us to a conference room. I mean, we knew them, but, you know, first of all, I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to waste your time. So we're going to bring you something. You're going to say yes. So we sat there for about 30 minutes while they went through the binders. They closed the binders and says, dude, let's go. This is incredible. We had it all tabbed, the buy. The date of the buy, the buy, the pictures, the drugs, the pictures of surveillance, you know, the cover conversation, the, the drug analysis, the photo analysis. Okay, next buy. 
and then the intelligence on what those were. And, you know, today, again, WhatsApp and, and texting and what have you, it's interesting. You never know if you're going to prosecute at state or federal level. In California, you can only prosecute counterfeit cases and particular drugs if the guy selling them knows they're counterfeit, which I think is stupid. But nonetheless, that's the law. You mean at the state level or federal level? At or the both? state level. At the okay. state level. Now, at the federal level, it helps if they know. So, again, Chris's investigators are super talented. So we said, hey, you know, we had an undercover story, what we were doing, blah, blah. And, and then at some point, the undercover says, who's a, a licensed private investor, says, listen, if you got like, I know there's some counterfeit versions of this medicine out there that are cheaper. If it works the same, give me the counterfeit stuff. I don't care. Like, I just want to make as much money as I can. And if I can buy it cheaper, I'm going to sell it at the same price anyways. So I'll make more money. You'll make money. And so we would tell the bad guy, listen, if you can get counterfeits, when you send me the product that's available, put an asterisk by the counterfeit ones and not by the authentic ones. Well, there you go. Knowledge. These four medicines are counterfeit. These six aren't. Thanks, Skippy. So now we know he knows. And the so great we, thing about it being on the private sector side they can't yell entrapment at you for doing stuff like that. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. But I tell you, I had a really great assistant U.S. attorney in in, uh, in uh, San Francisco teach me how to avoid entrapment. He says, whenever you're doing a deal, at some point when you're undercover negotiating, throw out something that's going to be contentious. That's going to slightly piss off the trafficker. And then say to him, dude, if you don't want to do business, it's okay. We're friends. It was nice to meet you. You go your way. I'll go my way. Never mind. We don't have to do the deal. No, no, no. I want to do the deal. Are you sure? Because if you don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. No, no, no. <laughs> right? They can't help themselves. So, greed. That's, that's like murder for hire stuff, too. You give them plenty of opportunities to back out, and they don't. Right. So, entrapment, fold it up, put it in your pocket. That's not a defense. So, uh, but of course, when they're putting an asterisk by the counterfeit medicines, okay, thanks, dude. And then you have it all on. Listen, I'll send you a WhatsApp. I'll send you, a, like, you can't do a screenshot of a WhatsApp, right? So you got your WhatsApp, you got your text message, you got everything documented. So we hump up, we do that. I don't know, we had about 20 months of our own investigation, take it to them. They spent another, I don't know, 14 months on this case. And they used the private investigators undercover because you still had that relationship. So it's kind of why risk changing a horse in the middle of the race if you don't have to? Because what if they don't like that undercover you introduced? Like, wait a minute. You know, I like the little Hispanic female girl, but this dude, Steve. So why, know, man. Yeah, why was this gringo named Steve now right. taking over for, you know, Javier, you know? Right, right. Like, why, why risk that? And in some cases, you could introduce somebody as your aunt, sister, boss, who who's believable. But uh, hey, so, real quickly on that, before you get into too much detail on that, um, the other thing I'm interested in, too, is these guys continue working on who foots the bill for that as these UCs. I mean, I know pharmaceutical companies, you know, there are several of them that do well. They make a lot of money. These investigations are not cheap. I, I know you can't probably just disclose exact figures, but just give us an idea. Like, it takes a lot of your time. You got to pay other people to. And then if they continue working as UCs, is your company picking up the bill for their UC work with the government? Typically, my so we probably spent, well, I won't say what we spent on that case, but let's say you can spend upwards of sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 on a year-long investigation, paying investigators time, making test purchases, all that kind of stuff. But typically, my experience has been when you refer a case to law enforcement, once you refer it to them, they don't want you to spend any more money. 
They want to make all the buys themselves, want to pay for the buys themselves. That's evidence they procured, uh, which is nice because, you know, we spend a lot of money. And if I got to keep paying buys, it's fewer cases I can make tomorrow. So inversely, every case that I've worked on the last 10 years or 15 years, once law enforcement had it, they spent the money. And we've got some really ca great, great cases in the hopper right now that I'll call y'all when they go down, but they're international. They're really serious bad guys. And uh, some of the federal agencies have dropped some big coin. And, of course, you know, Stephen, you guys both know, the more money you spend, the more confidence you buy, the more silly things you can ask for, which they'll say yes to. Because you must be for real, because I've known you for two years. You've dropped 60, 70, 80 grand on me. If you were a real cop, you'd arrest me when you ran out of money $28 ago. Right. That's so true. I got a budget for $37.12. What can I get for that? You know, and, and that's, that's the other reason we initiate these cases, because, you know, police agencies are scrapped for money. How are they right. going to go out and make buys? And what, and what are they going to buy? How would they even know what the product is? So, again, part of the, you know, pay it forward piece of this is we do these investigations. We we train them. We show them what it is. We pay for everything. Well, guess what? Now that they know how to do it. When they see something else, we were doing training in Sacramento one time with Chris. He's really great at training. And we had 100-something cops in the room. And we're showing these products from Latin America that are being sold all over America. And great training was through the CNOA, which I know Steve has worked with, the California Narcotics Officer Association. It was through them. And after the training, a, a Mexican-American narcotics sergeant came up to Chris and I and said, I got to tell you guys this. I'm not proud to do it. I'm kind of embarrassed. I should be embarrassed anyways. But one of those drugs that Mr. Graham was showing us, I buy that like every other weekend at the meat market for my for my grandparents who live here. I had no idea what Ooh. it was or that it was potentially counterfeit. But how would I know? How would I know if I don't know? That's the medicine that they took at home and they take it here and it's always available at the kind of city. It's a level of familiarity. So let me ask you something. Let me be contentious for a second and see if you want to back out or still do the podcast here. So uh there's a lot of sexy things out there. Terrorism, you know, working big cartel level cases, going after kidnappers, you know, violent bank robbers. I mean, if you're a cop, you're sitting out there going, okay, counterfeit medication. Why should I get a Woody over this? You know, why should I care? Well, so I'm glad you started the question like you did because you gave me the answer, right? This money's always going back, all going back to fund terrorism, to fund other illicit activities. And whether it be diverted cigarettes out of Virginia where the tax on cigarettes is two cents, but it's 36 cents in California, just move the trailer, buy it wholesale, move it to California. Yeah, and all that money, where's it going? To fund terrorist organizations. Same with this money, right? It's going to MS-13 or the Sinaloa cartel. So these proceeds aren't going to, you know, Joe's mom and pop liquor store. This is money being derived from criminal activity to fund bigger criminal activity in, in every case. So in some of the cases you've done, what are some of the organizations that you've been able to make links to that some of these proceeds are going back to? You know what's interesting? One time I was doing a case where we were trading infant formula for counterfeit Viagra uh, with some people down in, in Kentucky. And we didn't know their origin. You what know, do you mean formula? Uh, infant formula that you buy to feed the babies. You mix uh, water with the, with the powder. You make like Similac and that kind of stuff. Yep, that Similac, exactly. It became a very big issue for both counterfeiting as well as uh, uh, diversion and theft. You know, this organized retail crime, they steal this stuff by the hundreds of cases and then sell it in these mom-and-pop shops. And so it had been started by the state police. They contacted me when I was at Pfizer and said, hey, can you come in here? We don't know how to talk about Viagra. We'll do a tray. We'll do this and the other. So I get in this warehouse with these gentlemen from the Middle East and— of course, my name's Aaron uh, from my 
mom's side of the family was Jewish. They said, don't be using the name Aaron with this group because they'd be happy to kill you based on where they're from. I'm like, okay. So I go in, I'm looking at all this crazy stuff on the walls, killing, you know, Jewish people and people on fire. And I'll kind of like, holy crap, hope I don't get caught in here and I figure out who I am. Sounds like Hamas or Hezbollah or something like that. So back when Arafat was alive and the local task force was tracking money transfers from these guys to the PLO and then into those organizations. We see a lot of, uh, of the cigarette, uh, gray market, black market, going to Hamas and Hezbollah. And it's kind of one of the schemes that they have figured out how to exploit here in the United States to fund their terrorist activities is tobacco uh, uh, diversion. Well, one of my buddies that retired out of ATF, a guy named Scott Sweetow, but when I was doing this work down at Justice, we talked about a case like that. I was going, cigarettes. Then he explained to me about how they would counterfeit the tax stamp on cigarettes. To your point, they could collect 36. And in New York, the tax is outrageous. So you counterfeit the tax stamp. You make all that hard currency because now it's hard currency. And then that money's being sent back over um, to several terrorist organizations. And, and when you start in, in Virginia where the tax is one or two cents or three cents and you're, you have a wholesale business, you buy the product at wholesale. You don't pay any taxes on the front end. You're selling legitimate product. You don't have to counterfeit anything except for the tax stamp, and you make your money in the taxes plus the product. So it's a it's a no brainer. It's very seems you know simple, and it is. And so it's the same thing. Whether it be counterfeit pain medicines with fentanyl by the Sinaloa cartel, counterfeit children's cough syrup uh, with MS-13, or these uh, you know white label or tax stamp fraud uh, cigarette investigations by Hamas and Hezbollah, all the money is going to a much larger criminal organization. So let's talk about this case in San Diego. Uh, Homeland Security takes the case. Prosecutor loves it. Uh, they work another 14 months, making buys, doing surveillance, additional information. It was funny. We're, you know, it's always, it's going to go, it's going to go, it's going to go. And you're like, I always have a, you know, a, a, a travel reservations every week. Never goes. Uh, Karen and Megan and I went somewhere for Thanksgiving to get back. I get an email you got to be in San Diego in two days. I'm like, I'm on an airplane in a foreign country. Yeah, I know. When you land there, go. Don't leave the airport. Get on another plane and fly to L.A. Or fly to San Diego. I'm like, holy crap. So Karen and Megan took the car home. <laughs> I got on a plane with my bag and flew to San Diego. Next day, they pinched this guy when he came across the border, went to his warehouse, seized over a million doses of counterfeit medicines and illicit medicines and worth millions and millions of dollars. And uh, then... On top of all that, it was a crazy amount of this giant-ass warehouse. Guy had TB, had tuberculosis, and he was a pharmacist in Tijuana. So he'd been handling all the drugs that he was dispensing to his patients in Tijuana. And I like Tijuana. We grew up eating on the street down there, and my dad played softball down there. And it was like our other town. And then all these counterfeit medicines he was dispensing to people who probably were well under the radar in San Diego and Los Angeles. They've all been consuming stuff that he was touching with his dirty little fingers. The marshals wouldn't even take him at MCI. Like, dude, take this guy to the hospital. When he's clear of TB, TB, we'll take him back. Now, I never met anybody with TB before, never exposed to it. Unfortunately, I thought I was going to have to interview him because I speak Spanish, but they had somebody that could. Who knows? I might well, have, have you TB. ever heard of FaceTime or over the phone? I'll interview your ass. It's just gonna... <laughs> you heard of Zoom? We'll do it over Zoom. <laughs> exactly. Well, they were, they were hoping they were going to get past him, but he was kind of the kingpin on this side of the border. And uh, is so, the case ongoing? What's the resolution? Nah, he he uh, pled guilty, went to prison. Got I, it wasn't a great sentence, but I think it was a year and a half or two years in federal prison, which is a what? 
Oh, let me tell you that one of the real issues with this whole thing is the sentencing guidelines for counterfeit medicines. And I made reference earlier to the Food Drug Cosmetic Act. The sentencing guidelines for counterfeit medicines is very low. And unless you can show a direct correlation to a death, um, I, we're getting better guidelines. We're getting better sentencing on the fentanyl, because, but that's a controlled substance, right? It's a narcotic, and there's, and there's more death there. And I, one of the things that Carrie has started saying, uh, and again, Steve and I both admire her so much, but they don't call it an overdose. It's a poisoning. He didn't take heroin with the expectation of getting high. In, in Tosh's case, Carrie's son, Tosh had hives, and he'd been dealing with the hives. He was getting blood work done the following day, but he was scratching and itching like crazy. One of his buddies says, here, here's his annex. Take one quarter of it, and uh, you'll be able to sleep. And in the morning, go see the doctor. Tell him you took his annex, so if he does blood work, but at least you'll be able to sleep. And that's what he ended up dying from. So, um, yeah, so, but for non-narcotic-related counterfeit uh, drug issues, there aren't great sentencing guidelines. And that's, you know, I, I think we all know if there's a great deterrent to the behavior, then we can see people course correct their behavior. But if there aren't, I'm going to risk my life. And we see guys who have been dealing illicit narcotics for many, many years. Now they sell counterfeit medicines. They're making as much money. Kind of the point you made earlier, they can make a counterfeit cough syrup for three or four cents, sell it for $18. There's a better and, and if they margin. get caught, they can do a year and a half standing on their head. No big deal. My organization continues to work. I just take a year and a half off, get myself buff, fit, work out in the prison. Now I'm ready to come back out and do it all over again. And they might avoid all that just by saying, I didn't know it was counterfeit. And if you remember, if you remember, Aaron, the, the two times we've been on Capitol Hill and then uh, following that, we went to the American Legislative Exchange Conference. Remember how many people weren't even aware? Now, these are senior staffers. A few senators, congressmen stopping in there. Uh, the state legislative conference, I was shocked at how many people had no clue that counterfeit medications were an issue in our country. And these are our lawmakers. So that's why there's no teeth in the laws and the sentences that go along with this. You know, now fentanyl, as bad as it is, you said it's a controlled substance, which it is. It's bringing more attention to the counterfeit meds, which is creating a bigger platform so that more people can learn. But it's, it's to the point where, you know, we tell our family, don't if you're at work and you got a headache, don't accept a Tylenol from a coworker. They they mean well, but you don't know where they got that from. And with the counterfeit meds that are out there, it's just not worth the the risk. You know, go buy your own. Take an hour off if you have to, and go to the drugstore and get it from a legitimate source. Um, I mean, it's, you don't even want to trust family members hardly. Well, they they don't know where they got it, right? Or maybe they bought it online, and so they don't even. It's kind of like the Latino store owner. They don't know it's counterfeit. So your family doesn't even think it was counterfeit. And so I, I hope that we we take advantage of this horrible situation with the counterfeit pills containing fentanyl to say that could happen with a cancer medicine or an HIV medicine or a... Well, you know what you else know. it could happen with? Look, this is what they do is they look at it and they say, oh, it's just a counterfeit medication. What they don't see is they don't see the long game and they don't see, well, it starts with this. But then who would have thought the cartels would have been, who would have thought dangerous criminal gangs would have been involved in the manufacture of counterfeit cough syrup, right? Who would have thought the cartels would have been involved with the Chinese and bringing in, you know, uh, uh, precursors for fentanyl and things like that. And so that, uh, before I go off on a rant here, because um, I could, I want to talk to you though, it was one of your messages though, too. We've had, obviously, this is a this is such a weird time in, in my lifetime, and it is yours when we start talking about COVID. And COVID, we saw the explosion of all of these fake medicines and fake this and fake that. I mean, to the point of where 
what you just hit on, how can I trust what I'm being given unless I actually get it from a pharmacist, you know, a hospital, a doctor, you know, stuff like that. But the impact of COVID that it's had on counterfeit medication and, and all the supply chain issues, let's talk about that a little bit because you have to do an annual report and you came up with some, uh, just these findings that I just found uh, not fascinating, but unbelievable at the same time. Yeah. And I guess it, it would make sense if you stop to think about it, but we all have so much to think about in our daily lives. We don't. And it's not front and center because it's not part of our Google search to send me results every day. But if you think about it, all of a sudden you have millions and millions and millions of people sick with a disease with a finite set of treatment and a finite set of masks and a finite set of vaccines. And the and the illnesses continue to go, go, go. So, A, there's not enough of it available. B, in the countries where most of those medicines are made, China and India in particular, they were super hard hit by the virus. So they're not operating at full strength, so there's fewer medicines available than would even be available if at full strength, but people are still sick. So people are desperate. So, you know, what is the first thing you do when you need to get something you can't find at the store? You go online. And where do the bad guys live? Online. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to replicate a website that looks just like any major wholesaler, major retail pharmacy, and nobody's looking for an extra period or an extra M or an extra N or a typo. They see the big red design, they see the word, they type it, they click it. Oh, look, honey. One of the interesting things that I that we've seen over the last 20 years, back in the day, if a medicine was, you know, uh, $47 a tablet, the bad guys sold the counterfeit for a dollar. Now I'm really excited to buy it from Steve because he sells it for a dollar. But that also told somebody who was relatively thoughtful about this, that's probably counterfeit. It's like counterfeit, you know, Rolex watches. Ah, here's a watch. It's only 10 bucks. Well, dude, that ain't a Rolex then. Right. You know? And then you can decide. Like Murphy, he bought it anyways because he wanted to pretend. But And he's been doing that a lot on this podcast too. <laughs> yeah, he pretends. <laughs> but, but if you but if if you got somebody who's really looking for it, if it's regularly $47, make it 40 And they're like, oh, look, I saved seven bucks. But you didn't even think it could be counterfeit because it's almost the same price. I'm going to save a few dollars. It has the, that shred of believability that makes right. you think it's close enough. It makes you think, oh, this has to be legit because he's not selling it for a buck. He's selling it for 40 Why? Because we deal in volume. We're the wholesale distributor. You know, buy, buy now. Out. Here's how to order. We buy out. Wholesalers go out of business. Pharmacies are burned down. Blah, blah. We bought a huge quantity, like you said. So it's more believable. Now it's more believable for the person you got to the other the buyer has to want to believe too, right? And I think that's that's the reason I I asked Stephen Hobby to join me at some briefings and listen, let's let's really think about this. These guys are for real. They took down Pablo Escobar. They took down Medellin and Cali. They're it's not me. I have nothing to gain here. I just happen to know them, so I asked them to come. Believe what they're telling you. This is bad stuff being done by bad people, and but we also. Have tell people how, where to buy the medicine safely, right? But if you're at a flea market swap meet online, you don't know who it is, don't go there, right? That. Can I touch on, uh, you know, we've addressed this at every level we've ever talked to you, uh, with you, uh, whoever the audience is. Let's talk about online Canadian pharmacies. Is there really such a thing? Well, you were there at the, the last briefing we did. We had this <laughs> gentleman from, from Canadian <laughs> Customs, and he said, it's against the law to sell medicines online to a second country. Well, if that's the actual Canadian law, as uh, explained by a Canadian Customs official, then how do you buy medicines from a Canadian But it's on the pharmacy? Internet, damn it. It must be true. Right. You moron liar. Yeah, they put a Canadian flag on there, and you know that made right. it legit. 
And you know what? Canadians are so nice. There's no way somebody from Canada would ever lie to us. <laughs> we found that out from Stephen Matelski and Pam Barnum. One of the things we learned from our Canadian counterpart up there during that briefing was Canadian, you know, the, the legit pharmacies in Canada or the government, they order what they think will be a su sufficient supply of medications to handle Canadian citizens. They're not buying a huge surplus, one, because there's an expiration date on them. They're, they would lose money. And you know they're certainly not going to let the medications they need for their citizens come to those ugly Americans down here because we can get it a few dollars cheaper online. You know, a lot of this stuff is just common sense. And if and if you remember, Aaron, uh, I hate to – I'm not going to mention politicians because we make fun of all politicians. But it might be a, a leading politician in the state that I might live in right now was going to – thought he was going to supersede federal law and, and legalize citizens of his state to order, order medications through online Canadian pharmacies. Well, first of all, states can't supersede federal law. Second of all, there is no such thing. Third, you're going to introduce poison. You know, and I'm, and I'm during this particular call that we're doing, I was telling people, look, I'm not against this. I'm going to be a future turtle in Florida. You know, I want low-cost medications just as much as you do, but I want it from legitimate sources. I don't want poison coming in from Pakistan, from India, from China, from Mexico, from wherever it might be coming from. It's just, it's almost like, <laughs> well, we know this. Some of the politicians will say anything to get a vote without really researching it. Whoever that person's advisors were, he needs to get new advisors. Well, you hit upon that point, Steve. When I testified before Congress on uh, healthcare.gov, I did testify when they had the huge hearings and stuff. I was shocked at how ill-informed many members of Congress were in terms about how technology worked, about what was being done. You know, the, you know, and this is the, I think that's part of the danger. We've got people setting policy that are listening to people that have their own agenda. And so whether it's I hate to, you know, I'm not picking on you there, Aaron, but whether it's the big pharma, whether or not it's automotive industry, whether or not it's big tech or whatever else, Google, micro, whatever, I'm concerned sometimes is that we have people who are buying, inf buying opinions, you know, from an industry and promoting those as policy as opposed to let's sit back. What ought to be the right policy, first of all? Regardless of who gives me the information, seek out the truth and craft the right kind of laws and policies. Because if I'll tell you what, here's a quick lesson I learned because of healthcare.gov. You want to make you want to make healthcare more competitive. You know what you do is you allow the sale of healthcare plans across state lines. You, I mean, why is there Blue Cross Blue Shield Virginia and Blue Cross Blue Shield Kansas? I mean, you want to make it more competitive. Make it like buying a car. When I bought my um, uh, 2021 Kia Telluride. I love that thing. We have never bought a new car in the 35 years of marriage, but we bought this one. But you know what? I had to go across state lines to find the right one to get the right deal because of supply chain issues, because of other stuff. Imagine what would have happened if I were not allowed to buy a car across a state line because it wasn't it wasn't being sold in this state. Good points. Now you're right. And, and the idea of, you know, I'm a registered independent, so I can hate everybody equally. And I think most well, all of you guys in Connecticut are, you know, you know, <laughs> oh, I mean, no, trust me. No, 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 no trust wait a minute. Me. Who's from Connecticut? I'm, I'm sorry there. You know. Yeah. Uh, but so we, we always try hard to just leave the political stuff out of it. But what I did learn and, and Steve saw, cause he with me, you might have this politician red, blue or indifferent who has this really strong position in the public. And then you get behind closed doors like, wow, this guy's really smart. This guy's really reasonable. This guy's really thoughtful. So it would just reaffirm for me that I don't want anything to do with politics because once you get in, then you got to answer and you're beholden to certain people. 
But you do have people don't know about these things, and that's why it was so critical that I took Steve and, and Javi with me to the hill because no, they don't have a dog to a dog in a fight. They don't work for a farm. They're going to check from. They're just going to tell you what it was like to chase bad guys, how bad guys will get in these other areas, and present a new risk to the health and safety and well-being of, of American citizens. Well, if you remember too, Aaron, when we first started talking about this, and after. Hiver uh, and I discussed it. One of our first questions to you was, I "What remember. narcotic medications do your company make?" Which are zero. Which right. that's what we wanted to hear, obviously. And then they told me, "Okay, good answer." Because if you were making narcotics and you didn't, we weren't confident it was being controlled properly. We weren't going to work with you. Love you, not working with you. So right, thank exactly. God, right? See ya. Bye bye. Yeah, <laughs> but and I appreciate them telling me that because that fair enough, right? You're not going to risk your reputation. Well, and then you knew where we stood. Yeah. I mean, we have standards. They might be a little low, but we do have standards. <laughs> now, we, we have standards on this podcast. We'll invite almost anybody on, you know, and proof Aaron, right you, your proof right there. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but, you know, you bring up a good point, too, because one thing, Steve, we, we might get semi sort of political, but we try and we don't talk about politics. And even I get dogs sometimes because I'll do a lot of stuff for some major news networks like Fox or Fox Business. Well, you're just one of those guys. I said, look, I, I, I do ones and zeros, not R's and D's. There are there are idiots on both sides of that. And no more than when I heard the hearings about Facebook and you had senators, Republican and Democrat, asking the stupidest questions I've ever heard in my life, like asking Facebook, well, if it's free, how do you make money? Well, we sell advertising, you idiot. And he didn't say idiot. He said senator, you know. Well, now, WhatsApp is encrypted end to end. You know, what, what, so how, you know, if I wanted to talk about Black Panther, how are you going to put it in there? Because you're going to, we, we don't know. It's encrypted end to end. We don't see it. It was just, and then the worst ones, though, is when you get into members of Congress, you know, and, and the House of Representatives, because they all have, you want to talk to a member of Congress, uh, you know, that is a representative. What do they care about? The only thing, one of the only things they care about is how many jobs is that going to get for my district? You know, what are you bringing to me? And so they were pandering to Zuckerberg going, well, hey, we really love you, Mark. Would you put your development center here and bring in, you know, 170,000 jobs? for? I, you know what? I, I tell you, here's the problem. And this is Morgan's solution. Get the fucking politicians out of making laws. Get get common sense people who have no agenda, who don't get paid by any industry, and have them be the real. And I know there are think tanks out there like that. So it's kind of leading me into my question. So if if Aaron Graham were were the HMFIC, you know, you could be in charge of, uh, of the Office of Policy, you know, ONDC, what it's called, Office of National Drug Control Policy. Uh, but if you could be the HMFIC and you could come up with some real world solutions. What are you? Give us an example. What would you do differently than what's being done today? Well, I, I think it's one of the things we talk about a lot, and that is we've got to enhance the penalties for trafficking and counterfeit medicines, and we've got to enhance the penalties for trafficking what we call unapproved misbranded medications. So the same shipment coming from Mexico might be half counterfeit and half authentic, but from Mexico. Well, if we don't know the difference. That, I call that the Trojan horse, right? So the bad guys send medicine from Mexico. It's authentic. It works fine. Everybody's taking it. And listen, they play the long game. To your really good point, it's a term I like. They play the long game. They'll send all these medicines from Mexico for six months, for a year, for two years. So you know every time you go to Javi's Farmacia, you get your cough syrup and your pain medicine. It works fine. It's great. And then they have that date, they, swip, they flip the switch, and they send the counterfeit medicines. And so I call it the Trojan horse, right? Now, now they've introduced the counterfeits. We, had, we have one investigation where our undercover was talking to the, the woman down in El Sal who was overseeing the manufacturing of the counterfeit medicines. 
And he said to her, okay, so let me just ask you, does these, do these medicines work? Because if I'm selling this on the street in L.A. and somebody says it doesn't work, I, I, I want to try to pass the giggle test. So I'm prepared for them to say it doesn't work. I'll say, I don't know, man, maybe it just doesn't work for you, right? Every medicine works differently on everybody, so I don't know. And, but I just want to know. And she says, mijo, we're not making medicine. We're making money. Hey, don't worry about it. When I heard that, I wanted to just... But then she had a second piece. She says, but you know what's good about that? If they figure out it doesn't work, we'll sell them authentic medicine. And we'll just say, maybe you got a batch that was expired or outdated, or maybe your system was right. But here's a free one. <laughs> and then they feel better. It works. And now you have their confidence again. Now you're hooked again. You know what else this reminds me of, too? And you guys will remember this, too. One of the most tried and true tactics when a gang, whether it's MS-13, Crips, Bloods, you name it, wanted to come in and take over an area and take over dope dealing or selling crack or whatever it was, you know what you do is you'd come in and you underbid, you'd undercut everybody, and you drive those guys out of business because you would play the long game, right? After six months, you know, you've got, you've got them moved off. They're not buying from them anymore. They're buying from you. And then what happens to the price? They jack up the price. I mean, this is a tried and true tactics that criminal organizations have done for a long time. And that's, I think, the challenge, Aaron. I mean, how do we how do we start playing the long game? Because, you know, the problem is we operate in two-year cycles in Congress, four-year cycles at the governorship, six-year cycles in at the Senate level. But you've got criminal organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, talk about al-Qaeda, talk about look at the Taliban in Afghanistan. They, they played the long game for 20 years to wait us out. They did it with the Russians, Right. I don't know if we have the the wherewithal or the, the political will to play the long game on this. Everything's about a soundbite and how do we get to the next election? And what do I have to say to your point, Steve? What do I have to say to get somebody to vote for me um, because I have a pack now or I'm going to run for president or whatever the case might be? I mean, how do we change that thinking? Because until you change the people who make the laws, you'll never change the laws. I think one of the things that we've done successfully, and again, I give Chris Buckner a lot of credit for this. If you start, and, and it helps that all three of us were local policemen before we went on to state or federal law enforcement, the local agency is more effective, more efficient. Uh, they're quicker to act. I mean, we've all been out there as federal agents with the local Tucson police officer getting a telephonic search warrant at one in the morning, right? State search warrant. We were getting that at DEA, but he got it because the city operates. And the city, they got guys that work for 30 years. And they know the judges, they know the prosecutors, they know the laws, they know the systems. So we do a lot of work with LAPD, LA Sheriff's Office, Phoenix PD. They understand the city, right? The feds come and go. Feds aren't unlike, you know, congressmen. They come and go. But the city and, and county cops are there, and they own the system. So if we can build the good cases at the city and county level, and then when it gets to a certain level, it can get adopted by the feds. Now we've got threshold quantities of crimes and drugs and money that are more easily uh, enforced for money laundering, fraud, uh, conspiracy, that is a good federal crime. So, you know, I could spend the next 10 years tilting the windmills because the senator and, and congressman at the federal level won't change the laws appropriately, or I can keep making great cases with the L.A. County Sheriff and others, and then when they get to a certain threshold amount, we can transfer it to HSI or FDA or FBI and get prosecution because we, now we have that big, you know, threshold of crime that the assistant U.S. attorney will take. That's kind of our—listen, that's a survival strategy. We've we got to be realistic about our expectations on changing the, the penalties and consequences for the— you know what I'm afraid it's going to take? You always have those come to Jesus moments, right? When did we get serious about terrorism? It took 9-11 for us. Well, the other thing, too, is we're always fighting yesterday's battles, right? We started hardening cockpit doors on 9-12. Dude, that's fighting yesterday's battles, right? We consistently fight yesterday's battles. And, and that's my, that's my um, concern is that um, 
we will never, it's like we won't change the laws because a lot of these people, they don't get it. They just don't get it. And so you can go make all the cases you want. What I, what I was getting to, what I'm afraid it's going to take, it's going to take a, a if, if 100,000 deaths a year doesn't make you change the law, I mean, my God, what does? I mean, how many people got to die in an apartment building before you say, oh, we should maybe should have sprinklers that work or like just the tragedy that just happened in New York. 17 people die there, Philadelphia, because equipment malfunctions, because shit doesn't work. I mean, what it's, I mean, how many people got to die before Congress uh, starts acting to change these laws? The one thing that changed the face of uh, investigating cartels was extradition. And that was one of the things we talked to Javi and Steve about, too. I mean, and that was the one nuance. People think it was about drugs. No, Pablo was fighting when he was doing all of this shit. It was to prevent extradition. You know, that's the one thing they feared in El Chapo, right? What's the equivalent that – what do you, if you had to predict, what, what is the event that it's going to take before Congress really gets uh, serious about this? I, I think one of the questions we always hear when we're trying to demonstrate how big this problem is, is well, where's all the dead bodies? Where's all the dead bodies? And I don't even want to think about the answer, right? Now, we have the dead bodies with the fentanyl, but now I'm talking about cancer medicines and HIV medicines and cough syrup. Where's all the dead bodies? And one of the other problems is we have Esmeralda's sister. She obviously died of something. We have this other person. She obviously died of something, but we can't show the the for sure. And I just hate even, honestly, uh, Morgan, when you ask the question, I hate even thinking about the answer because the, I think the one driving factor that will impact everybody is a death. But it took a long time to get on top of this fitness stuff and the cannabis drug stuff. And um, I just hate to think that's it. I hate to, but it reminds me of what Stalin said one time. He says, you know, a thousand deaths is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic, you know, and it's just, you know, and we think it's like, but unfortunately, that's the thing. It takes somebody dying. Why does it have to take somebody dying to get action on stuff? Well, but, you know, we're old enough to remember when the D.A.R.E. program was essentially designed to address some of that and, and raise. I'm a huge fan of raising awareness, make people aware of the danger. But I think it was Steve one day to hear said, whatever happened to D.A.R.E.? Right? Where, where is that today? You know, it's it's uh, if we don't do the awareness piece and the demand reduction piece, what are we doing? We could fight fires all day long, but they keep popping up and we're not doing anything proactive to prevent them. So, you know, it's one of those, It's a, I think it's a, a generational argument about, well, why don't we just legalize drugs? Okay, that's an idea, right? And, and, and it's some of this other stuff. We have to take control. I don't know what it's going to take, Morgan. I think it's the $10 question that gives me a stomachache because it's, I, I, I can't imagine if death, if death of innocent people is not the answer, then what could it possibly be? Well, and this, you know, that gets right back to the basic laws of economics, supply versus demand. You know, we've, we've said this multiple times in multiple interviews. The United States is the leading consumer country of illegal narcotics in the entire world. So, you know, I used to have the same argument like you were talking with about the Mexicans. We had this, not a, an argument, but a, a discussion with the Colombians. And you get to talking about, you know, cocaine coming, the leaf coming in from Bolivia and Peru, what's being done about that, the cocaine labs, labs in Colombia and the distribution routes and all that kind of stuff. And... You know, I mean, I could put up a good argument to a point. And then they'd look at you and they'd say, if it wasn't for the demand in the United States, we would not have the supply here in Colombia. Game over. I mean, you talk about a mic drop, they could drop the mic and walk away, and they won every single time. So the D.A.R.E. program, which was defunded by, you know, whatever administration was in power at the time, it has come back now 
Um, you know, we're big proponents of that. Love the DARE program. Um, but what happened to personal responsibility, accepting the consequences of your actions here in the United States? I've got a real problem with that. We teach our kids for every action that you commit, good or bad, there's going to be a consequence, right? So if you choose to take illegal narcotics, the consequence could be death. But to get back to the question of what does it take that Morgan posed, does it take, you know, somebody in our president's family overdosing or our leading senators and Congress people? Because that seems to be when you get a lot of attention, when well-to-do people are affected by this, then there's action. Uh, it, it just, it makes you sick what's going on. You know, the, even the, you know, you talk about the, the racial issues. Well, the, the African-Americans maybe are not getting as much attention in, in investigations when, uh, an African-American is murdered. Whereas if you're a white person of privilege, Gabby Petito, we did that for Patreon, Steve, they exactly. called it white woman syndrome. Right. And at the same, yep. at the end of the day, you know what? Everybody counts or nobody counts. Famous right. words of Harry Bosch, you know, Michael Connolly. But but it's true. Words were never spoken. What difference does it make what color you are? But you hit upon the head until their ox is gored, until it affects them. Nobody takes it seriously until it affects them. Right. Right. And and that's that's one of the reasons that I like Carrie for your show. I like Carrie in Congress. I like Carrie at the at the LAPD auditorium. Because, you know, when I opened the, the, the presentation with Carrie before she came out, I said, can I ask everybody to do me a favor? We're gonna, we have a special guest today. Can I get everybody who has a, a son or a daughter, everybody who's a parent, everybody's an aunt or an uncle, everybody's a grandparent, just please stand up. And, of course, by the time I had everybody stand up, I said, so I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who, whose son, um, you know, was poisoned by a counterfeit Xanax. And kid was an all-league baseball player. He's a musician. He's an artist. We'll tell you more about him later. But he wasn't a drug addict. I said, let me ask you a question. While everybody's standing, could everybody in this room who has a badge, who has ever heard that this person accidentally overdosed on a narcotic, he never used drugs, how many people in this room believe that? They never used drugs. It was a total accident. How many of you believe that? Nobody raised their hand. So I raised my hand. I said, look, I probably wouldn't raise my hand before I met Carrie. But now I know what happens. And if we don't do anything else today, I might start again. When I talk about Carrie and Tosh, it's hard. If we don't do anything else today, we're going to have one more person raise their hand after you hear from Carrie. And it did. You know, and it's the same. Remember the three sisters that we had up on Capitol Hill also, that their sister, you know, took a muscle relaxer from a work uh, companion because they were unloading boxes and pulled a muscle. And she That's went to right. sleep and never woke up. Right. It, it just, every time you carry, <laughs> you know, we're tough guys, right? But just like you, man, you get to talk about Carrie and these other folks, that these innocent families who are not drug addicts, and it brings a tear to your eye. It's hard. It's, it does. I, I just it think is. the world it's... of her, and she's a perfect person for this. But she's one person. I mean, I, I can see us running her into the ground. But you know what? She'll never stop. She'll just keep running until she face plants. And, I know. Uh, you know? And, and the problem is there's more and more Carries every day. Well, at your point, there's a lot of carries every day, but there's a lot of carries we don't know about. Why? Because nobody figured out why they died. Nobody figured out what really happened or uh, hate to pick on COVID, but I'm going to pick on COVID because I have a problem with the numbers. It's like, oh, I came in with a cut on my finger. You know, I came in with a gunshot wound. I'm bleeding to death, but I had COVID. So what's it classified? I'm classified as a COVID death. No, gunshot wound to the heart. That was pretty fucking clear, you know? Mm -hmm. But Steve, you were talking about that too. I came up, I wanted to make sure I got the quote right. 
And this is one of the problems with uh, uh, solving the demand in the United States. But Paul Harvey said it best. He said, self-government won't work without self-discipline. It's having that self-discipline. I mean, and that's why I think we had dear officers when, when I was a detective and on the PD. Um, we had, you know, you started to seeing even school resource officers now. One of the biggest mistakes they made was pulling them out of schools, you know. Um, but, but I don't know. I, I'm, I get at a loss for words. This is stuff. This is a more serious episode than we planned. Normally, we're, we're having a little bit of fun telling stories. But this one, there's nothing funny about this. I mean, you can't make fun of something that where it's like, You've got, doesn't matter what race you are, sex you are, how you identify, it's all irrelevant. If you're taking something that you believe is supposed to be the real thing and it kills you, how is that not just a huge tragedy? Because if there's one, there's 10. And if there's 10, there's 100. And if there's 100, there's 1,000. I mean, how many people got to die before we start saying, you know, maybe we should start putting seatbelts in cars? Well, when you put it in perspective of 50,000 deaths from the Vietnam War and how many deaths of our soldiers in the Middle East in those wars— those numbers all pale in comparison. Those were, you know, generational wars. And the totality of those two wars, and you add Korea, pale in comparison to 2021 from opioid overdoses. That's ridiculous. That's it context. Really so, um, yeah, so, yeah, I like when you guys joke and fool around and tell funny stories and make fun of Steve and what have you, because, you know, that's Well, what that's we easy. That's too yeah. easy. We, I'm trying to raise our game here. Right. But I but I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about this one issue because we need to continue to raise awareness and work with people like Sheriff Villanueva, work with people like the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, work with people like the National Association Boards of Pharmacy, work with people who are all about making a difference. And listen, there's a lot of reason to be upset with big pharma and medicine's expensive, and I understand that, and I get my butt kicked regularly for getting a check from them. But we're spending a lot of money where there's no ROI except doing the right thing, right? And I don't need to defend it. Not going to defend Aaron, it. And when I said that earlier, I mean, I'm picking on everybody in general because that's the, but that is the perception. But the reason you're on here too is to let people know there's people like you who used to put your butt on the line for people for not very much money, even back in the day, right? And I mean, now you got a private jet, what, and a chauffeur <laughs> to the airport, you know, each time you go somewhere. I mean, you're, you're making bank now. I yeah, mean, you're, something like that. With the pool and the yacht and everything. Yeah, but yeah, the point yeah. about it is, but at the end of the day, they don't, you make that one case, you take that one person off the street like you did with that doctor. How many more of those are out there? It's like it's not like you probably didn't even make a dent in the whole supply, right? I mean, sometimes you got to feel a little bit frustrated. It's like, look, we worked this case here. It is three years. And guess what? It's fucking whack-a-mole. There's 10 more people like him out there that we don't know about. So that's right. When I first became a policeman, I had people I grew up with like, dude, you're a fluent Spanish-speaking finance major. Why would you go do that? That guy you took off the corner, there's another one taking his place tomorrow. And you know what? You know the old starfish analogy? Somebody walks up, they see a kid throwing starfish back in the ocean one at a time. But right? it made a made difference it, to him, Made a right? difference for that one. And so you know what? I took that guy off the corner. I'll get the next one. But I just don't let people give me that but story because— But what's the because... alternative? I mean, what's right. the alternative? We do nothing? Right. Well, right. Or, or, hey, let's let's have a quick discussion, too, because I know this—first of all, we get a lot better numbers when we create controversy, and Steve and I have created controversy with the <laughs> shit show that is Loudoun County. Let's let's talk—let's finish off this discussion about about this myth of legalizing drugs and how that would solve all of our problem. And let's start off with you first, Steve, and then we'll end up with you, Aaron. So oh, let's look talk— Look what time it is. I got to go. See you guys. <laughs> Coward. <laughs> 
you don't leave until we tell you to leave. No, it's it's L for loser, <laughs> oh, not coward. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. So let's let's talk about this. I mean, why don't we just solve all our problems and make all drugs legal, and then we wouldn't have to worry about overdoses and counterfeit medication and fake stuff like that. Yeah, and, and just before we launch into this, I want to say, uh, and I meant to say this at the beginning, but I just couldn't, we're going to start talking, I couldn't get a word in edgewise, is Aaron, what Javier and I were doing in Colombia, Aaron was doing the same thing in Mexico. You know, we were feeding him leads up there. They were seizing hundreds and thousands of kilos of coke. There were gun battles. There were people being killed, innocent people. It's just that Pablo Escobar had the media's attention at that time, and Mexico wasn't the big player that it is now. It was becoming that way. But the reputation wasn't out there like it was with Pablo Escobar. So um, he's being very humble here. He's not telling you about all the danger he really faced down there. I mean, he he, he did tell us some uh, skin crawling problems there well, that he faced down there. Well, we're going to have you back. We're going to we're going to go deep on those. So you're you're right, Steve. I mean, I started talking and you said something about Georgia Bulldogs and I just went off the rails. I couldn't handle it. <laughs> and then you then you so, poser. You took off your sweatshirt. Oh yeah, you're a dedicated Georgia fan. You wore it for five minutes and then took it off. It's hot. It's hot in here. It's Florida. <laughs> I might even have to turn the fan on here in a minute. So anyway, okay, okay. So over, I just wanted to get that out there. I mean, this is, you know, Aaron is, is uh, a guy who's been there and done that. And I love the fact, I, I love this saying, and, and I, I take credit for coining it. Just because we retire doesn't mean our oath expires. We all took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and to help our fellow Americans as well as others that are allies and here's, you know, Aaron's been retired much longer than I have, and he's still out trying to do the right thing. So God bless you, man. Everything I love everything you're doing, and that's why we're friends, and that's why I continue to work with you. So now over to our legalization thing. So Take a big, deep breath. Here we go, Steve. Legalization, oh, yes or no? I'm going to stand up because it's, you know, I'm going to get on my soapbox when we talk about this. <laughs> legalization has been tried in other parts of the world. It's never worked anywhere. You know, I get hammered every time I say this, and I'll continue to say it till the day I die. You know, people come up and say, oh, look at the Portugal, the model in Portugal right now. It's not working. You're just deflecting. You know, you, you got to get go talk to the people that actually live in that country who are having to deal with that, especially the law enforcement professionals who see it on a daily basis and see if it works. It doesn't. It doesn't. The other thing is, OK, let's legalize all this crap. Well, you know, here in the United States, we're starting to legalize marijuana. Recreational use. I don't know. I never smoked it. Uh, does it affect everybody equally? I don't know. I read reports, but I personally do not know. But I personally do believe that marijuana is a gateway drug. And by that, I mean you smoke weed. Okay, you get a little buzz. Whatever it is happens. I understand that you get munchies and you get fat from doing that, you know. Is that a good thing? Now you got health problems from eating too much. But people who have never tried it before because they're law-abiding citizens well, now they think, well, wow, I tried that and it wasn't so bad. So I wonder if Coke is really that bad or heroin. I mean, heroin, you know, is an opioid pill that bad? Well, I'll just try heroin because the opioid pill is supposed to be worse because it might be fentanyl. So I'll just smoke heroin. You know, it used to be you had to shoot heroin up with a needle because the street quality was so low, you couldn't get a buzz without going intravenous. Well, now the street quality is so high, you can snort heroin. There's no telltale marks on your skin, you know. So is that a good thing? Um, I, I relate back to when I was a kid living in Tennessee, growing up young kid and, we're, you know, our buddies, we'd get together, we'd go to our little tree house and hang out. And one of the guys brought a can of beer that he'd snitched out of his dad's refrigerator. Well, you know, peer pressure is a big thing, not only for children, but for adults as well. 
you know, peer pressure in law enforcement, <laughs> you got to have some big stones to stand up to some of the people in law enforcement because there's a bunch of type A's out there. So we all took a sip of beer. It tasted like shit, but you couldn't let on because that's your buddies out there. Well, you know, everybody said, well, that wasn't so bad. You know, that's really not so bad. I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, then the next thing you know, somebody snitches a bottle of wine out of, out of their mom's cabinet and bring it out. We try that. Well, the next thing, somebody snitches a bottle of bourbon. You know, so you're progressively getting into stronger alcohols just because it's kind of a gateway and it's not a bad thing. So um, I'm sure I'm going to get some negative comments. As I don't care. I, I believe the way I believe. I have seen a lot more than most people that are going to listen to the podcast. I've seen the death and destruction that it causes. You think legalization has gotten rid of the violence with the marijuana trafficking here in the United States? Ask the seven people in Riverside, California, that were murdered about a year and a half ago who were growing illegal marijuana grow, and some rivals came in to take them out of the business because they were negatively impacting, impacting the illegal Mexican marijuana being grown here in the United States. Okay, so it's, it's not getting rid of the, the, the violence problem. And now, I mean, you know, is it uh, Washington or Oregon has legalized small amounts of peyote mushrooms, of methamphetamine, of cocaine, of heroin? That's okay now? It's like, when are we going to expect people to be responsible for themselves? You know, we're going to create a, a class of people who are chemically dependent. And I understand, I hear stories that there are heroin addicts who function in daily life and nobody ever knows. Well, that's not that's not the majority. That's, well, that's the exception not to this entire rule. Either. So here we all are, the three of us. Well, Morgan still got his own company there, but I mean, we're kind of retired, but we, you know, we're workaholics is what we are. We can't retire. I got to have something well, to I do. I didn't have that cushy federal pension, man. I still got to work for a living. Yeah, and for some reason, I still have to work even on that pension. I'm not getting something's wrong here. But well, none of us <laughs> could be Aaron with that cushy, you know, corporate job, you know, as plane, you, you know, and yacht but, and everything else. So now here we are. We've worked our asses off all these years to provide for our families. We pay our taxes. We try to be good, upstanding American citizens. Why the hell should I be responsible for taking care of the drug addicts who who made a conscious choice to not be able to take care of themselves? I have a real. I'll help anybody. If you're a victim, if you're being bullied, I'm there for you. If you're a drug addict who took, who made that conscious choice, and and the reason I had it hesitated there because I got people in my family who are. I've got people in my family who kicked it, who I'm extremely proud of. And I've got some who are very close, who are still fighting it. You know, so I, when I say these things, I, you know, I guess I am pointing my finger at them, but I just don't feel the responsibility to take care of people who have said, you know, screw it. I'm not going to take care of myself. And then we want to legalize it. You know, I get all this hate mail. I get this nasty stuff on social media from people who support Pablo Escobar. And when you look them up, they weren't even alive when he was in power. And I'm thinking, what the hell do you know? What have you seen in your life that you think somebody who's responsible for over 50,000 murders should be viewed as a hero? Go talk to the surviving family members of the innocent people that were killed down there and see what their opinion is. You know, you don't know shit, but you want to throw your opinion out there. It just, okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now because we'll be here another 20 minutes. Well, but you bring up, there's, there's some issues there too when you look at it too. It's like... Um, legalization is not the problem. And I'll tell you why too. There were 
reports prepared by some intelligence organizations, some other stuff. I know DEA worked with what they call the risk projects, the regional information sharing systems. And uh, one of them is um, uh, Armin, the Rocky Mountain Information Network, and they worked on after marijuana was legalized in Colorado. The cartels have not gotten out of the business. Do you think they've gotten out of the business of drugs? You know what they do? They start controlling the source of supply. If there's money to be made, the cartels, Steve, to your point, will come in and they will take it over. They will run legitimate people out of business. Hey, look, it's one of the things. If it's legal to do, I get it. It's legal to do. I don't like every law. Some laws I like, some laws I don't. But you don't get you don't get the um, luxury of deciding. Oh, well, I'm going to enforce this law and not this law. I mean, that's been part of the problem. But anyway, but I mean, if we thought it's a fiction to think that that's not the case. So, hey, Aaron, let me let me give you the last word here. Let's talk about the legalization of drugs based on your experience, Mr. Um, you know, my own yacht, my own plane, my own car, cushion, you know, I don't need a federal pension. I, I give that away. You Mr. Know? Jobs yeah, Jr. Yeah, yeah, that. Well, I, I think Steve eloquently and emotionally uh, touched on all the issues I would uh, also say. My concern is that we really don't know what we don't know. So, you know, you can look at virtually any place where they're selling legal cannabis and you could go into four dispensaries, buy the same brand cannabis, do a chemical analysis, find out they have different levels of THC in every one. So I'm a, look, I'm kind of like what you said, Morgan, if it's the law, it's the law. I got it. And I'm, I'm going to try not to tilt it too many windmills that, you know, I can't really affect. But if we're going to do something and make it legal, then let's make it legal and compliant and safe. And I think I like to try to use the word reasonable whenever I can. If these things are reasonable, okay. But I think the people don't understand is when you start introducing substances of unknown, you know, efficacy and safety and even what's in them, and if they're addictive, then you have people who, I just look at our, this next generation and the one, uh, you know, following that one, are we giving them every opportunity to be great and to have a great life and to make America great? And I think when we give them opportunities to be less than great, uh, then that's not healthy for any of us. And look, all of us want to quit working one day. Somebody else can start working so I get my Social Security and I can, you know, be safe in my place. But I just worry that we don't really know the the efficacy and safety of a lot of these medicines that we want to make legal. And I don't think that's reasonable. And I don't want to be political. But I think it's very easy to say I want a safe, healthy environment for our children, our children's children and where I live. And I don't necessarily want to be, you know, Clint Eastwood on the front line yelling at the kids to get off. On the other hand... I want people to be safe. And look, we all made a living and made a choice to run towards gunfire, to protect people we will never know. And that's probably my most emotional thing when people want to do this and do that and blame everybody. You know, just for not, you know, not for nothing, but I made $15,000 a year to be a policeman in a very dangerous part of a, of, a, of a large city to run towards people I would never know who were international terrorists to protect other people I didn't know. And I had a degree in finance, spoke Spanish. How was I going to get my yacht if I got killed at soccer fields? You know, in 1983, I wasn't. But you know what? I never even thought about it. And I had plenty of people say, what are you, a moron? You could be doing a lot of other stuff. Yeah, I could be. But you know what? Every night when I lay my little head on the pillow, and as one old, 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 really crazy agent told me, every night when you go to bed, Aaron, hold your badge up to your ear and hear 200 million Americans say thank you. Okay, so it's delusional. But I know that. And I'm okay with that. And I think I just want that for other people. And if the, if it's a reasonable decision and we should have these illicit substances that nobody knows what's in them legally available to consume, that doesn't seem reasonable to me. And I let people decide for themselves. But I'm, I'm instead of saying I'm opposed to legalization, I'll say I support a safe 
public approach to, you know, all of our citizens. And if you can't demonstrate it's safe, then that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, there's no way you can convince me legalizing, uh, making fentanyl uh, freely available is going to solve the fentanyl problem. I mean, it's just, by the way, let me put a couple things in context that will close this out. For example, Portugal has 10 million people in it. So when people point to Portugal, there's two things that make this, you can't apply that to the US or the rest of the world. First of all, Portugal is bound by the sea on one side, you know, and Spain on the other. So they have their border control. They can control what goes on. Imagine if Sheriff Villanueva was able to put a border around the, the county of Los Angeles and control everything coming in and going out of it. You know, have crime would be different. You could do a lot of things, but you can't do that, right? The second thing, it's the issue of culture. I was surprised when I was in Belgium one time, tasting Belgian beer, obviously, you know, in Brussels. But I look down the bar and I'm thinking, I know a couple of these beers, they got a lot of alcohol in them, you know, but there's no way that that girl down there is 18 years old. And they weren't. The legal drinking age in Belgium is 16. Why? Because they were raised that way. It's culture. You cannot, that's just, that's why you can't say, well, let's, let's make the legal drinking age 16 in the U.S. We don't have a culture of kids growing up being around wine like the French do or the Belgians, right? It's also an issue of culture. So those are the things. And if I were playing devil's advocate, I could play both sides of it. But at the end of the day, um, just because you, le why don't we just legalize bank robbery? That'll stop bank robbery. Good point. Well, you know, I mean, you could you could try and it's called abducto ad or uh, uh, reducto ad absurdum. You can reduce it to this, you know, absurd level. There is just some point, and until you can show me is that by legalizing this stuff, don't use don't use the single outlier as the example for everything. Show me in the U.S. Show me a study that was done with a hundred million people not less than 10 million in its own. Show me across the EU. And when you look at the stats in the EU, because I was pulling those up as we talked, the numbers are not good. I mean, Portugal, Portugal compared to the EU is good, right. But what happens if I can control an area, you know, beautiful place like Mallorca, you know, in Portugal. So we, we, can, we can get into all those discussions. But then I digress and we're taking away from the podcast. So, hey, Aaron, Let's give you the last word here. Let's let's tie these things up together, you know, with the DEA. But if there was one message you could get to, out to everybody that you just want, you, you talk about raising awareness, but what's the point of raising awareness unless we have action behind it? It's like, oh, hey, your house is on fire. Great. What do you want me to do? Well, maybe call the fire department. What's the next action we take after I've just told you your house is on fire and you play with your crotch as you're obviously doing now? What is it you're doing down there, pal? You answering the phone on us? Are you answering the phone on us on this podcast? No. I, I want to make a point. Oh, okay. I just, you were looking down at your crotch and I'm going, that's the same thing I see when people are trying not to get away or get away with texting as they're driving. They're looking at their crotch. Well, what are you looking at while you're driving? Go ahead, Aaron. No, I was looking at something, a note I'd written down. To your point, we, we, if we talk about the counterfeit drug thing for a second and I'm, I can't afford my medicine, I'm struggling to afford my medicine. I'm hearing about all these great internet sites that where I can get uh, less expensive medicine. You know, one of the things that I share a lot with other people is if you go to uh, safe.pharmacy.net, safe.pharmacy.net, it will give you a list of internet pharmacies that are authorized and ones that are not authorized. Well, that's pretty simple. Somebody sends you an email from stevespharmacy.com. If I was going to end this conversation with one message, it's that we know people are struggling to afford the medicine. We know people are looking for a, a better price. We know people are getting advertisements every day for places to buy their medicine less expensively. 
the National Association Boards of Pharmacy has a program called Safe.Pharmacy. You go to Safe.Pharmacy, you type in the website for the ad you just got, the email you just got. They'll tell you if that pharmacy is legitimate or not. Hey, Aaron, I just pulled that up, and I went to the site that said these are not the following sites are on NAPB's not recommended list. I can't scroll that fast. My little scroll bar over on the right is about the size. Well, I won't. I was going to make a funny joke about Steve, but it's really, really. I mean, it's it's not even it's not even a, a quarter of an or half an inch tall. The scroll bar on the right hand side. There are so many sites. Twelve pills. One eighty pharmacy. One A meds. One Aero store. You know. One the key, RX. Yeah. The key, God. Morgan. Though. The key, Morgan, is the way to use Safe.Pharmacy is you're going to receive an email that says, go to stevespharmacy.com to get the best price on your heart medicine. Go to Safe.Pharmacy, type in stevespharmacy.com, and it's going to come up. That pharmacy is not approved by NABP. That is not a legitimate pharmacy. And so if we just start with that, if we start with that one message, if you receive an email about a pharmacy, if a friend tells you they got their drugs at this place, go to Safe.Pharmacy. Type the name of that pharmacy, that website, into that browser, into safe.pharmacy. It's going to tell you that's not an authorized, safe place to buy your medicines. So I would start there. That's the message I would share. If, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Probably shouldn't buy your medicines at the flea market. Seems like a good idea because the price is good, but that's not an approved place to do that. Now, if you get a bigger browser and you go to safe.pharmacy, you can find some, but you can sort it by state. You can find some safe pharmacies, some legitimate pharmacies, a brick and mortar or online or mail order. Those can all be legitimate. But if you're not sure, go to safe.pharmacy, type hey, the Aaron, website in there. Hey, Aaron, here's a stat. I'm sorry. I got to interrupt you. I just pulled that up. This is going to blow people's mind. Nearly 95% of websites offering prescription-only drugs online operate illegally. Exactly right. I brief Congress on that every time we meet. 95%. Uh, right. And that's, they typically survey between nine and 12,000 internet pharmacies every year. And consistently, they get the 94 to 95% of those, let's just say 10,000 pharmacies they looked at, are illegitimate. Okay, so 95% is not 5%. It's not 10%. It's a much greater than not percentage that you're going to get a dangerous place. So use safe.pharmacy when you want to buy your medicines. I mean, I, I always say use a brick-and-mortar pharmacy that you know in your community, but you don't have to do that. Safe.pharmacy gives you that ability to vet that website you just got. And if it says it's bad, it's bad. And But you know how few people know about this site? So I, you know, I less say than five percent. This says here there less than five percent of consumers are aware of tools to help them find safe online pharmacies, according to the Alliance for Safe Online Pharmacies. So I, I, I believe that. I, I didn't know that stat existed, but it totally makes sense. So um, it's an issue. It's going to be a bigger issue. And and to an earlier question you asked, with COVID and supply chain issues and the huge demand for medicines to treat many of the comorbidities, obesity and respiratory and what have you, there's a big, a greater stress on the supply of medicines, meaning less availability, meaning more people are going online to find it somewhere else, meaning they got a 95% chance of getting an illicit medicine that won't treat their comorbidity. And now if you catch COVID and your diabetes or asthma or some other comorbidity is exasperated, you're going to die of COVID. But the reality is you couldn't control the comorbidity that you knew you had because you can't get the medicine because the supply chain is jacked up. So it's a complex issue. It's, it's frightening. I, you know, And you know what it creates an opportunity for? 
organized crime, criminals, to create this stuff and sell it because they are playing to people's fears to say, you can't get medicine from there. We got the only medicine that's going to cure COVID. Here it is. They're happy and willing to fill the void in a very dangerous way for all of us, right? For our grandparents, our children across the globe. Well, man, I got to tell you, this has been, we'll bring you back because we're going to have to dive into the other stories like Steve was saying. And I said, I was, it was, I made mention of that at first. I said, look, we, we do this at our own peril because we are glossing over a lot of the stuff that you did because you actually said, hey, I want to come on, but here's what I want to talk about. Because you wanted to talk about what you're obviously working on right now. But I'm telling you, just the just the facts, just when you told me about that, I was, I'm pretty technically savvy. One of my degrees is computer information systems. I mean, I do this for a living. I was not aware of safe.pharmacy. I mean, just, I mean, you're just chock full of good information. You know, you know, Steve, so that, that was one black mark against you. But, you know, hey, man, you you acquitted yourself well on this podcast, even though we both had to put up with Murph wearing his Georgia <laughs> Go dogs. Sweatshirt. Oh, did I say that right? Go dogs. Um, you know, and that, it, with Aaron, our friendship is just like me being married to Connie. I'm the best thing that ever happened to him. Bye, far. <laughs> just ask him. <laughs> I was trying to remain serious, but you know what? You just blew that, Murph. You know, just, you just, you know. We got to we end on a happy note. Well, you know, well, no, end up on a load of bullshit. You know, I'm the, he's the best thing that ever happened. That's what he tells everybody. You know, we were out to eat dinner one time. He says, hey, do you know me? I'm actually Boyd Holbrook. Boyd Holbrook paid me. You know, you, you know Boyd? Boyd and I are pals. We're buddies. That's right. That's I got right. a picture why, of me and Boyd. That's why we're not having him on the show. You won't call me back. <laughs> right? Yeah, we'll call you back. That's why Steve let his wife sleep with Pedro Pascal. Well, I mean, sleep with him in the bed or lay with him in the bed. All I know is my friend Morgan told me he has a picture of Connie in bed with that guy, so... And oh, it's, it is it's on, on the, the website. Go to GameCrabsPodcast.com, episode 30. We have the picture of Connie <laughs> Murphy in bed. Breaking news with Pedro Pascal. Shocked. That's right. Hollywood is shocked. Photographic no evidence. You, are you in bed with anybody we can put a picture on, Aaron? No, no. In fact, I sleep on the floor. Yeah, thanks for asking that. <laughs> but on, a, on, a serious note, on a serious note, I've watched many, many of your episodes. I'm going to watch more because you mentioned a couple of names I want to know more about. But you guys are, are in, in addition to your humor, right? And, and Narcos is world famous for sure. And I talk to friends all over the globe who've seen it and can't believe I know Murphy. Usually I say I know Javier. But <laughs> the, the message on this podcast, there's a, you know, I, I think it shares a really great message about what law enforcement professionals are doing. And, you know, the deputy in L.A. who gets shot in the jaw and then saves her partner's life. And Claudia you know, Polinar. Yeah. Wow. That's a friggin' hero. Right. And there's just so many of the episodes People should have to at least watch the first 30 minutes because I think after 30 minutes, they'll be addicted. They'll have to watch the next 90 minutes. Well, Aaron, I got to correct you on something, though. You listen to podcasts. You don't watch them. This is a problem Murph had. You old school people, you listen to podcasts. You watch television. I mean, work with me here, Aaron. Give me something. These young whippersnappers, they have no respect for their elders. What do I know? I'm a natural blonde. <laughs> Leave it at that, okay? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. We'll have you back. And um, and I know that we didn't mention your company, but, you know, we know who it is. But, I mean, it's like you tell them thank you for allowing you to do this and make sure they hear this too. Because, But you hit upon the key thing, and I think this is one of the things that Murph and I are probably most proud of is when we tell these stories, people realize there's real humans behind the badge. You know, there's real people behind the badge. We don't interview people who are on such an ego trip that they think it's all about them. Everybody we've talked to, they want to serve, they want to make a difference. Yeah, do they get it in, into it for the excitement? Yeah, but at the end of the day, they're doing a huge, you know, public good, and they're they're people. They got families. They've lost friends. 
you know, in the line of duty. They've lost friends to COVID. They've lost friends to fentanyl. Uh, you were just saying, Murph, too, you, you've got family members who deal with addiction issues. You know, everybody's human here. And don't diss on people because of their job. I like your point, Aaron. Make friends with everybody. Everybody's got a story. And you've got a great story, man. So we want to thank you for coming on, uh, you know, the podcast. And make sure when you get done, you if you watch the podcast, all I'll see is a picture of you just looking at your iPhone going, is it supposed to do something? Is it? I mean, what's going to happen here? <laughs> when, do the, when do the videos come up? <laughs> Oh, well. All right. Thank All you right. very much, guys. It was an honor. Thank you, guys. Everybody, stay tuned for the debrief. Hey, guys, as I told you, I said, I asked Aaron, I said, why should I care if I'm a cop on the street? Boy, what an answer. I mean, if I, I, I knew stuff was going to places to fund stuff, but I had no idea how much of this money ends up back in the hands of the cartel, how much of this ends up back in the hands of terrorists. So when you buy counterfeit stuff, man, just, uh, it, it, by the way, too, here's the great, here's a piece of news for everybody. There is no such thing as an online Canadian pharmacy <laughs> does not exist. Very true. Please don't believe that crap. There are politicians here in the United States that espouse that falsehood. It's just absolutely not true. So, uh, if you need more information on that, contact us on it through the website or Facebook page or whatever. But uh, more, uh, Aaron is just has done a phenomenal job. You know, when when I first met him in his current occupation, I didn't know that pharmaceutical companies like his, which by the way produces no narcotics, we're, we're not allowed to tell you the name of the company on here. We don't want to get Aaron in trouble uh, or in a bad spot with his company, but. Uh, I didn't know that these companies were so protective of their brands that they had these undercover operations going on out there to identify people who are, you know, they're really pilfering their brand name. I oh, think yeah. it's pretty cool. I think it is cool, too. And by the way, guys, the the resource he was talking about was safe.pharmacy, S-A-F-E dot pharmacy. Yes. It is an actual website. You go there, you plug in the name of the website you're looking at. By the way, what you're going to find out, 95% of online pharmacies, not legit. Right. Right. And, you know, the other thing about Aaron that I I love is here's a guy who's been retired longer than I have, and he's still out there doing what he can to protect the public. You know, just got more energy than you and I combined. He is still hustling it. He he can talk. You know, you got him to slow down some. He he can talk so fast that I can't keep up. (laughs) Even in the Spanish, he was just rattling it off. Oh, yeah. Hey, well, if you think this episode was good, we got more coming up for you. So Aaron was definitely a treasure. He is going to be back. We're going to talk about some of the stuff in uh, Guadalajara and some of the other stuff he got involved in. But we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit that five-star button. That's one, two, three, four, five, or uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. Or as they say in Farsi, yekto se chorar pan shi. What'd you call me? I I didn't call you anything yet. (laughs) Hit that fifth button. Ichi ni san yi do. I think that's Japanese. I think I got that right. Just hit those five stars. Let us keep working for you guys to bring you great episodes. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We, a lot of pictures about Aaron posted there. As you saw, we posted, I think there's 30, 34 pictures up there <laughs> of all different things. And by the way, the first picture I posted, he looks like fucking Pablo. That dude is Pablo's brother. The cheesy mustache. You don't, don't tell, don't try and tell me Pablo's dead. He's alive and looks like Aaron Graham somewhere. <laughs> Him and Elvis. Him and Elvis, by the way, thank you. Thank you very much. Also, follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com, 
or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more exciting content. But Steve, as always, as always, as always, patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's where the good stuff is, where our episodes are, our random surprises, our 12 part series on you and JP talking about the real DEA narcos on the real DEA narcos. Uh, we've got uh, American History X coming up that we'll be doing. So a lot of great stuff, don't you think? Oh, I love it. I love it. The Patreon, we get to have some fun. That, I mean, we try to have fun on all our, our regular podcast interviews, but, uh, you know, we get to have some fun on just, you know, rating the movies. Just, <laughs> I love that part. What I really like is the Q&A we get from our listeners, because you can ask us anything. It doesn't have to be about a podcast. You can ask and us. believe how, me, some of the folks have. Oh, how'd you get to be such a jackass in your life, you know, and things like that. So, and we'll answer. And, and Steve was unable to answer that because he still remains a jackass. So. Oh, it's, hey, I've been working on this for a long time. I'm not quitting. <laughs> oh, well, don't quit either. And we don't want you folks to quit on us either. So head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. Share one, tell one. Just share it with your friends. Tell them about an episode. Get them to listen. Share the gift that is Morgan and Murph. And by the way, as we always say, thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. <laughs>